So my forehead is on his bar and I am crying. And really the story starts not that day, but the day before that day, okay? I, uh, that night I had been in Carrion de las... Um, De Los Condes, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Basically, it's the town of the dead counts. Carry on, De Los Condes, the town of the dead counts. See, it seems as though El Cid, a famous Spanish guy, had three daughters, and his three daughters married three counts, and those three counts turned treacherous, and so El Cid just had them killed. So the town gets its name from the three counts that got. At any rate, I'm having this amazing meal, and it's a great night, and the next day is going to be a, a long stretch, right? And, and so, so the, it starts off with like about 18 or 19 kilometers of just like flat, straight Roman road. Okay, the Romans did some really cool road things. At any rate, and so I'm like, you know, I wake up, I'm feeling pretty good, and I'm like, I'm going to push the pace. I'm just going to push the pace and see what I can do. And I'm walking, you know, and so I knock out the 18 kilometers in a little less than three hours, which if you're running isn't all that fast, but if you're moving with even a lightweight pack, which I had on my back, it's a pretty good pace, you know. And crying, uh, as well as crying on bars, crying on the trail was something by this time I'd grown quite used to. I'd usually get on the trail by 7, 7.30 in the morning, and uh, within that first half hour, uh, tears would start coming. And like for two hours, I would just like cry on and off. I would sing, I would cry, I'd pray, I'd cry, I'd look at trees and cry. I'd think of good stuff, I'd think of bad stuff, just at any rate. So I'm, I'm cooking along so that I get to the ending point of the day by lunchtime, okay? And so I, I try to check into the Jacques de Molay, okay, uh, Templar Knights, if you are familiar with that, Jacques de Lomay, um, Albergay, um, the Albergay, a uh, fancy word for hostel, and, um, but they're, they're, they're not open yet. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go to the next town. Not that big of a deal, it's only another little bit, and so I get on the trail and start moving, but I had stopped for lunch, and I had gotten cold, and the temperatures were dropping, and then it started to rain. And so by the time I get into Sahagun, which is actually the halfway point on the Camino de Santiago, really a point where you should be like, wow, I've made it halfway. I was like cooked. I was done. I was finished. I wrote in my journal, I think I pushed it further today than I should have. I went out too hard, and then I went out too long. So I stay in this hotel, and honestly, I think I was the only person in the entire hotel. And what they had downstairs in the, in, in, in the where, uh, restaurant was a frozen pepperoni pizza and an old salad. <laughs> now, truth be told, the entire trip, I ate pretty well, okay? But this night absolutely sucked. It was horrible, okay? And, and so I couldn't get warm, and so I go to bed, and I'm still shivering, and I'm bundled up, and then I wake up in midnight, and I'm just like, you know, pool of sweat because now I'm so hot. My body was like, what are you doing to me? Okay. And so I wake up the next morning and I'm utterly depressed because I'm like staying in this mausoleum in which no one else is living. And they sort of serve the worst food in the entire world. And, and so I get down to the front desk and, and because this hotel was unique, they didn't allow you to have Wi-Fi in your room. So my phone lights up and it's an, it's a, it's a message from Anna. And she had accomplished her goal of swimming the second day. So I'm checking out of the hotel, and I'm just like weeping. Like I said, I've gotten used to tears by now. And, and the, the, the kind young 
lady who was helping me check out said, are you okay, sir? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yes. And so I showed her the email, you know. And so I get on the trail, right? And I'm going along pretty well. I stop for a pastry and a cup of coffee. And, and, I, and I get to this spot. And I'm feeling great. But then something happens. And I don't know whether it was because I was dehydrated or I was a little undercaloried. But, but I, I walk like the next 10 kilometers in like three hours, and I'm just barely making it in, and I get to this town. The name of the town is Calzadilla, and um, it is this nice little place. And I sit at the town fountain, and I probably drink a liter and a half of water. I sit there for like an hour at least, and I make up in my mind that I'm going to stay in Calzadilla because there's no sense in pushing it. I don't have to push it. So I go to the local hostel, I try to enter, I try to get in, and the little old lady who's there wouldn't let me in. (laughs) She was cleaning the place, and it wasn't open for business yet. And I'm like, I'm not in a good spot right now. And she didn't understand my English, which makes sense, because I was in Spain. So I walk down the street, and I meet this person who does speak English, and I ask if she knows where there's any place where I can get some food, and she points me to this little tienda, which is down this road and down this hallway, and this little short dude, he's like five foot three. No, he's less than that. He's like 4'11", okay? Like Amy Labar towers, towers over, I mean like towers over him. It's just like... And, 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 and he sees that I'm not in a good spot, okay? And so he opens up his little tienda, which honestly is maybe 9 by 12, but he's got amazing cheese and, and an incredible jamón, which is the Spanish version of prosciutto, which is, is just really a, an amazing, amazing thing. And he's got uh, manzella, little uh, like clementine oranges, and he's got yogurt. And, he just, and so he sits me down, and, and he makes me this sandwich, okay? And I'm thinking, this is going to cost me a fortune. So he makes me this huge sandwich, thick bread, thick cheese, lots of slices of thinly sliced jamón. And I'm just like thinking it's going to be crazy and, and four uh, clementines, mandarin oranges, and, and, and there's yogurt, and there's all this good stuff. 350 euro. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? I'm like, I just wanted to give him like a 20 and just like say thank you. So I push on to the next place, which is religios. And uh, there's supposed to be two hostels there, um, according to the guidebook, that are open year-round, okay? By the time I've got to Religios, I'm at about 34 kilometers on the day, and, and it's not, I'm tired, and it started to rain, okay? So I go up to the first hostel, it's closed. I go to the second hostel that's supposed to be open, it's closed. I call the numbers that are on the front of the doors, no one answers, it goes to voicemail. And I realize that at the end of the day, I have to do another six kilometers, which another six kilometers isn't that big of a deal unless you're already at the end of the day. And it's raining. And so I limp into Mansilla. On the way out of Religios, I texted Tanya and I just said, you know, I'm not in a... Great spot right now. If you could just pray for me. Limp into Mansilla, okay? And this is just 18 kilometers outside of Lyon, in case you're paying attention on the trail. And, and, and there, I, I come up to the first albergue, first hostel, and, and it's closed. And I come to the second one, and, and they are like, I'm sorry, we're all full. <laughs> but they're like, if you go down to the San Martin, if you go down to San Martin, he'll have a room for you. So I walk into the door of the San Martin, and I said, I'm looking for a room. And he says, we're all full. And I start to cry. 
I put my head on his bar. I'm like, no, no, I can't go any further. Now, fairness in conversation, I probably could have gone a little bit further, and there was another albergue in town, but I was absolutely cooked at this moment, right? And, and I'm just like, I'm crying, okay? A 51-year-old dude crying on a bar, okay? And the guy's like in his mid-30s, maybe early 40s, and he doesn't know quite what to do with that. And so he ducks around the corner, has a conversation with someone, and comes back and says, I can help you out. He picks up a key, walks me to the room, and I enter this little 9 by 12 thing that has a single bed that, that is a bed, and, and it has a, a clean shower and bathroom. And he's like, why don't you get cleaned up? and come downstairs and check in later. The text today is like the text last week. It, it's pretty frontal. It's, there's not a lot of ambiguity here, and, and it's pretty bracing. So just hang on for the ride. Page 567, Isaiah, verse 21, chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. I'm not quite sure that if you were trying to confront someone, if you could come up with an opening line that's more bracing, more in your face, more slap across the mouth than what... God does through the voice box of Isaiah here. The first line, the nation of Israel, specifically the town of Jerusalem, specifically the idea being that Jerusalem is the head, it's where the leadership exists. The old phrasing, okay, the, 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 the fish rots from the head down. Did you actually know that it's a Turkish phrase um, coming out of the 1600s? And, and, and the phrase originally, as best we understand it, from Sir James Porter's observation on the religion, law, government, and manners of the Turks, written in 1768, is that it was the fish stinks first at the head. that if the leadership is bad, 
the rest of the country is in a lot of trouble. And so Jerusalem is singled out in a very specific way and described in incredibly bracing language. That the country, the people of God, are rotting from the head down. That the things that they thought were valuable are now worthless, precious metals, the finest wine. And the elite are not elite. They're in pursuit of bribes. They want money under the table. They only want to serve self-interest as opposed to the interests of God. And specifically, this manifests itself. It's right here, verse 23. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Again, they are not caring about the fatherless and the widow, the disadvantaged. Now, like I said last week, I'm not trying to make a political statement here. I'm just trying to make sure that our views about life are informed by what the Bible says. And certainly it is easy to look at the time of Isaiah and to criticize the leadership. But in what ways do we behave that have echoes of this kind of behavior? You may say, well, I'm not a judge. I don't sit in a courtroom. But have we ever rushed to judgment? Have we ever denied justice to someone in our sphere of influence without fully knowing the facts? Again, the issue of the fatherless and the widow. How does this play out in our minds, in our lives? And I know when we get on a social justice theme, people get a little freaked out. Especially if we have a bootstrap story of our own, where we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and and by, by virtue of our hard work, we are able to accomplish something truly extraordinary. And I don't say that with derision. Okay, That's my family's story. That is my father's story starting from nothing and accomplishing through hard work, the ability to work hard given by God, a a mind for business, another gift from God, but, but he worked hard. He and mom put this thing together. And sometimes because of those stories, we sometimes look at those that are disadvantaged In a challenging situation, sometimes we look at the widow or the orphan. And we might think, well, they're there because they just don't want to work hard. And if they don't want to work hard, they should be there. And I'll grant you, sometimes that's true. Sometimes people are in a bad situation because they don't want to work hard. Be the first to admit that. But sometimes there's some people who are in a bad situation simply for the fact they didn't have a family like I had growing up. A family that loved them and cared for them and provided for their needs and allowed them to become educated. 
I understand that much of what makes the world go round is successful local and national and international business folk. So I ask for your ear in this matter, not because I need to defend what God says, but rather to relay the message that is very plain, very clear. That when we say we love God, and want to be in a relationship with God? That comes with some pretty significant obligations. But the year is 700 B.C., or B.C.E., if you prefer. And Israel, Jerusalem, the people, the leadership, are in the crosshairs of God. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the therefore really makes it read a little bit easier, but but, but the intentionality of the Hebrew isn't a smooth transition from something bad happening to what God's going to do. It's kind of an abrupt, it's a, literally we would translate the word woe. And it doesn't entirely make sense because you're like, well, why would you woe something? But, but it's just, it's, it's, Isaiah, in quoting God, is woe. This is going to turn around. I, Yahweh, have no interest in continuing like this. I will get relief. I will get revenge. Notice the way that God refers to God how God describes God. The Lord of hosts. This word, Lord, is a word that's familiar to us, but really the Hebrew again behind it is this four-letter word, A-D-O-M. And it's used only, well, it's largely used in Isaiah and and a couple other times in the Old Testament. And and it's this notion, this this Lord, yes, that gets at it. Uh, Sovereign would be another English word that would get at it. Um, but, but, but it's this idea of God being over all. And then the second phrase, closely related to the first, okay? The, the mighty one of Israel, okay? Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, you would have noticed this because this is how God refers to himself and how the people of God refer to God as they're coming out of Egypt, okay? The mighty one of Israel is doing these things for the people of God. Okay, And that story is compelling in and of itself, demonstrating who God is and his mastery over so many different things that the people, even in the surrounding areas, were afraid of the Israelites because of the Lord of hosts, because of the mighty one of Israel. And now all of that is churned. It's churned against Jerusalem. It's churned against the leadership. It's churned against the people who thought they were the people of God. And God's saying, we're not going to put up with this. The behavior that's been sufficing, the behavior that has been held in the hands of the elite, we're we're, we're not going to do this. We're we're, we're done with this. I, I will get relief. We will get back to where we should be. 
And so we have this picture of a, of a strong hand churning or returning. And then we have this hope of restoration and redemption. And we have this hope of good judges and good advisors and good counselors. And we also have this reality that those who continue in the pathway against God will be taken out. Now, we certainly know that Isaiah is addressing an issue that is happening in the present day, 700 B.C., of Israel. And we know that when we talk about this restoration and redemption, that is yet future. The thing that makes me scratch my head is how future is it and when does this happen? We know if roughly this is in the 700 B.C. or B.C.E., if you prefer, we know that 100 years later or so, uh, the Assyrians will be out of the picture and the Babylonians will be in the picture. And then a couple hundred years after that, uh, Alexander the Great will be in the picture. And then a couple hundred years after that or so, then we have the Romans in the picture. And, and by the first, second century, roughly 130 plus or minus, the temple, the second temple, is absolutely destroyed and Jerusalem is it's nothing. So how future is the future? When do when does this redemption, this restoration take place? And closely related to that, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Who or what is Zion? And is Zion just a Jewish thing? Or is Zion a God thing? Is it figurative language? Is it literal language? To put it another way, is Zion one city? simply a physical reality? Or is there an overarching spiritual component? Holding that thought, verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. Forsaking God is the functional equivalency of being consumed, of being burned up, of being used up, of being destroyed of nothing remaining. The text, again, is very bracing. These big, beautiful trees that were once valued are now knocked down. It's, It's dead wood. Beautiful gardens that were so amazing to walk amongst walk in and enjoy the cool of the afternoon, are are, are just dried up. And the strength of the people, these strong, strong folks, it's all gone. 
the stuff that was so valued. It's all gone. At the beginning of the year, David Brooks, columnist, commentator, wrote an article on self. He said something along the lines of, because I'm going to quote him, you probably want to be a good person, but you may also be completely self-absorbed. So you may be thinking, there is no way I can be good if I'm also a narcissist. Isn't being good all about caring about other people? But how wrong you are. Obviously, he's writing a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And and he takes up the notion of this idea of self being the most important thing and how self drives our culture. And I think it's the problem that exists in the time of Isaiah. They're so focused on themselves and what they can get that they're not willing to see God and what God wants them to do. So... I get up to my room, okay, and I strip off the outer layer of clothes, and I'm so cold, I climb in my down sleeping bag, and I double-check my journal just to make sure I was accurate, and I shivered for about an hour and a half to two hours. Then I'm coming up against the time where they're not going to serve dinner anymore, and I wanted to get down for dinner, and so I take a hot shower, but that really didn't work out. I'm still shivering. I pile as many clothes as I can on, and, and I go downstairs, and I have this amazing meal, okay? Um, the guy owns the bar in the hotel with his mother. And she's the cook. And I don't know why she had the permission to release the keys to the room that I was staying in, but at any rate, there I am. And so she makes this amazing paella. If you've had paella, you know what it's like. It's like breathtakingly good. And then she has this thing, bacalao. Okay, bacalao is just a Spanish word for cod, but it's in this red sauce that's not like a tomato red sauce. It's just like, I mean, it just haunts my dreams. And as the young man who owns the bar and hostel and restaurant with his mom serves me, I just said, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And he just looked at me and he says, remember this and do this for someone else. It's easy to think that when we're blessed, It's about us. But but what we have is the means to not only live our own lives, but to bless the world around us. To bless those that are in our sphere of influence. The reason why the nation of Israel is getting condemned is because they don't give a lick about the person who has a need. Let's not find ourselves in that same spot. Please pray with me. You can tell I haven't preached for three months. I'm way over time. (laughs) Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And while you love us and have redeemed us, and have blessed us. It's not about us. It's about you and your kingdom. About us sharing in what you've given to us. 
being generous with the world around us, by caring for those who are in a challenging situation. So make us wise, Father. Allow us to see the opportunities, whether they be for an orphan or a widow or someone in a tough spot. Allow us to be the people of God that you have created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.